All right. So um, I know Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, but I want to start with Transfiguration Sunday, the fourth Sunday, uh, uh, the um, Sunday before that on uh, 211. Because it, as I started looking at these things, there's a couple of interesting patterns that show up for us. So on the Transfiguration, of course, you you have this, the scene where they go up on the mountain and we have the voice that says, this is my son, beloved son, listen to him. Then the very next Sunday, you have the baptism on the first Sunday in Lent in which you have the voice, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If we were going to do this in narrative lectionary form as they do, we would read those in different order. And we've just recently, in celebrating the baptism of our Lord, done this same thing, you know, this baptism and this voice. The voice is important throughout these issues through Lent because jump all the way down to Lent 5 and you have another voice, you know. So it begins and ends the first two Sundays, if you consider transfiguration as the end of epiphany but also the lead-in to uh lent you have the voice coming and saying this is my son and then at the end you have a voice it doesn't say it was god it says a voice from heaven that talks about i will glorify your name so we're all in on the the, the continuation of epiphany of revealing who the christ is and the deepening of it for Lent is the implications for us of God revealing that who Christ that this is the Christ. So you start with up in transfiguration. You think about it in those terms because the first Sunday in Lent, people say we heard something like this before. If they were there for transfiguration, this is my beloved son. So I think you have to call attention to that. Then, so you start off with the first Sunday in Lent with the baptism. This is my beloved son. Then the very next Sunday, you've got where they've said that you are the Christ and you get that, get the behind me, Satan. So you're developing throughout Lent the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? All through Epiphany, we've been hearing he's the Christ. What does that mean? And week after week, we confront the question of going to the cross. The other thing that's interesting is that throughout February, we're in Mark. So you have um, the transfiguration text in the first two Sundays in Lent, which is the 18th and the 25th are Mark. But then the last three Sundays, the three Sundays in March, in in March are from John. Kind of jumps the shark a little bit. Yes. Yeah, you know. yeah, you go over and you're going to be doing John, and you've got, because John's timeline is different chronologically, you ending up with the money changers in the temple, and then the next week you have Moses, and if I, I got to be lifted up, you know, you're moving to the cross. And then we have that text in John, which starts with, sir, we would see Jesus, the people coming who want to, to be in encounter Jesus. But again, again, you get the cross. 
If you love your life, you'll lose it. You got to follow me, take up a cross, the voice from heaven that will glorify. So that's kind of, so as you're looking at preaching throughout this season, what I think we're, we're looking at is saying, not arguing that Jesus is the Christ, but examining two things. We've been told to listen to him. This is the son, and he is said to us with a consistent thing that he says. So that's the question. Say, when the voice says, listen to him, then we need to look back and say, what is the consistent thing that Jesus says? And the thing that he says is, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Take up your cross. Follow me. Lose your life. Commit your life. So the message of Lent has to do with self-sacrifice and commitment to the kingdom, turning your life in this new direction of taking up a cross and following. <laughs> and I think perhaps many of us in the church are so accustomed to this language that we don't hear it anymore for how incredibly, incredibly countercultural it is. Because the culture is all about what is in it for me. The churches, and I, I'm not going to point any particular fingers at any particular pastors, but the modus operandi of most of the churches that seem to be popular and growing is to say, what do people want and can we find a way to promise mm -hmm. them that the God, Jesus and God will give it to them? You know, and consumerist advocation of saying, you want a better marriage? Here are seven ways the Bible tells you to have a better marriage. Hmm. It, does, it, it doesn't have to be, it's not even crude. It's not even in crude kind of prosperity gospel, blab it, grab it, we used to call it. It's not that crude. It is, if it just permeates the American culture as we look at ways to improve our lives, to get things better, if you look around, everything's about how to make your life better and how to have a better life and lose weight and look prettier. Obviously, I missed out on all those memos. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the gospel is, Jesus is consistently saying, turn your life in a new direction, repent, take up a cross, follow me, Lose your life for the sake of others. So the question for me overall for Lent, and I'm going to stop at this juncture, mm -hmm. is the question is, week after week, how do we call people away from, I think, where most of us are a lot of the time, to look at a different path? And what does it mean at this juncture, at this mm -hmm. time in 2024? Mm -hmm. <laughs> What does it mean to deny myself and take up a cross and follow? So thanks, Delmer. And, and yeah, I'd like to pause and get a little reaction from you all. Yeah. But uh, for me, <clears throat> hearing that, I hear you saying, well, people generally, we're not lining up to say, 
what can I sacrifice? What can I take away? What do I need to give up from my life? Other than I know people who take very seriously the giving up during Lent of some practice in order to devote more time to a spiritual practice. I know some people who take that very seriously. I also know many people who kind of offhandedly, yeah, I'll give up chocolate or yeah, I'll give up, you know, this out of it. And it's sort of like a, almost like a fad, you know, to do without any <clears throat> deeper connection. So I'm hearing you say that we've got an opportunity here, beginning with ourselves, to help people uncover and consider a deeper connection to this, <clears throat> the real call of, of, of Christ. If the question is, what does it mean to be the Christ? The secondary question is, what does it mean to follow the Christ? If, if I'm going to be that follower and uh, to say it's countercultural, Holy moly. I'd love for us to flesh that out a little bit. Uh, some reactions from others and just uh, tap in and begin. If we get two people trying to talk at once, I'll I'll make a judgment call and, and try to clear that up. It's not particularly profound, but uh, years ago, a young priest told me that we ought to uh, take up something for Lent or take up who are you going to take up or what are you going to take up? And that's more in the spirit of the ministry of our Lord. Hmm. Take up your cross. Yeah, Cliff. I had a, <clears throat> I had a friend in the church. <clears throat> I'm still a lay person. He was kind of an uh, elderly person. Everybody often asked him questions, but he gave up one year for Lent, giving his opinion. <laughs> and, uh, and it ended up, he ended up taking it very deep. Uh, the, sort of the phase two of that was uh, he began to journal on what he wanted to say, but didn't. He got to where he, he wouldn't respond, and he went deeper and deeper and deeper. It kind of became a rule of life for him. On um, it kind of follows what Delmer talked about. He didn't mm -hmm. use those same terms, but it made him look at himself, and what he wanted to say, and what he should have said, and what Jesus said. Wow. That's a that's a great example of an accessible kind of uh, Lenten discipline, sounds like to me. I love that. Any of you by any chance have watched or are watching the Netflix series Louder Milk? Well, the, full, the character Cliff just described is the character in Louder Milk. It's a guy who struggles. He just can't help sharing his opinion with everybody. And he's a former music critic, and he brings his critic's eye to everything in life. And, it, of course, that's constantly getting him in trouble. Um, but it's pretty illustrative of exactly what you're saying, Cliff. Yeah. Somebody, anybody else? This idea of thinking, <clears throat> again, situating ourselves as we're going to be bringing these texts to folks and what it means to be preaching in Lent. I've been looking at the themes, and I picked... I had all those things kind of lined out that Delmer just talked about. and But I'm also thinking of kind of the background to Jesus coming as the covenant that God offers in the beginning, you know, the promise of the rainbow and not to forget um, to be in relationship with us. And then also um, the fact that uh, there's when Moses is given the snake to lift up to drive off the snakes, we're also we're given Jesus 
um, that's, you know, that's Jesus is what we're given. Um, you know, so God is always sending us reminders. Um, but I think even, even with the covenant is that repent and also believe, I think belief and faith have to come into, um, or they, you know, they're necessary for us to understand what it means to, you know, take up the cross or to, to, to what it means to follow Jesus. So put it, I think trust is, um, probably going to be a big word for me in my my them thematic preaching this this lent yeah yeah good stuff it's not a minor i mean a major point i don't think but it, it it's something for us to at least think about um that jesus begins right where john sort of leaves off you know the, the repent believe the good news you know the kingdom of heaven is here and and sort of moves on from there i, I don't want to blow by that too quickly and for me it's a sign of the how continuous what jesus is doing is with what god has been doing out of the covenant and and throughout time and probably some folks in our congregations and certainly preachers I've met over the years tend to want to kind of separate that. Well, what Jesus is doing, it's, it's all new. Well, it's new, but it's not all new. It, it's, it's continuous with what's come out of the covenant with what John was, was doing and now what Jesus is doing and takes it, takes it on uh, in this season. Real quickly, let me see. Anybody else want to get in? This is the best way. The wave hand on the computer doesn't work right for me. Um, ideas? Yeah, Pam. I I like what you just said about um, Jesus picking up where John left off. And because God's word is a continuum across time. Yeah. So people throughout history have spoken. And um, John spoke and Jesus spoke. And now we speak you know how do we help our people to speak and to to carry through into the world mm -hmm. what um what jesus does did does and continues to do right yeah cool okay well delmar carry on thank you for that's helpful i think and a good tip for us as, as pastors get an idea of where you're heading Okay. Don't let, as I have done earlier in my ministry, my preaching plan was driven by, okay, what am I going to say next Sunday? Um, <laughs> so it's a good idea to have an idea uh, where we're heading. So take us on in to the process. Well, as I said, one of the things to be thinking that I'm going to be thinking a lot about is how much the voice comes and, and questions of that whole issue of voice, particularly if you push it back. I, I push it back to the transfiguration because I think the whole baptismal voice being fulfilled later by the transfiguration is an important lead in into Lent as to the question of what does it mean for God to have said or the voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son. I, I would explore a bit uh, this whole belovedness. Mm -hmm. um, and what does that mean? Because that's the consistent thing between the two voices, beloved son. One of them says to Jesus himself at the baptism, you are my beloved son in whom yeah. I am well pleased. And at that juncture, uh, nobody hears the voice but Jesus. But in, in Mark's gospel, if I'm remembering that correctly, let me double check because they 
play well, around. Yeah. It just says he heard the voice. It doesn't explicitly yeah. say nobody, nobody else did. But, but, and then the, the other time, this is my son, but listen to him. At least the, in the baptism, it is the, the voice speaks to Jesus and has a message for Jesus. At the transfiguration, the voice is spoken and the other disciples there at the transfiguration hear it. Then you get down to John Lent 5 and other people hear it but don't understand it. It was thunder. You know, there's a crowd that says, I will, I will glorify you. Mm-hmm. And some said, was that thunder? <laughs> um, what was going on there? So, yeah. so I, an exploration of the voice mm-hmm. from heaven and uh, exploring further as to what voice do we have, uh, I would think, going through there in a growing sense of the church's voice, not us as the clergy, but the church's voice speaking on behalf of God, perhaps in some ways, and also speaking about God. Yeah. Are we clear? Do we know who we're talking to? <laughs> the mm. question. And do they sometimes just hear what we're doing as thunder? And how do we make it more clear what we're saying? Or are we thoroughly ignored? And um, <laughs> what do we do about that? <laughs> that uh, I th- again, that little piece, Transfiguration Sunday is a great, I, I like to think it of as a bridge. Yeah. It is coming out of Epiphany. It is Epiphany, obviously, with light, yeah. you know, image, et cetera. But it's carrying us forward. Uh, into the rest of what Jesus is doing and into our Lenten season. So it is an important Sunday. I know some people may observe it or use the text later, but it's a good one. So uh, as you do the five Sundays in Lent, here's here's the other thing that I was thinking about, the buildup. So you you have the first Sunday with the, the baptism, but you also have the temptations. And I think one of the, the great things to, to work with is, We've just come through Epiphany, and and Jesus has been revealed, and we we're celebrating all that. And Jesus, I always think about Jesus coming up out of uh, the waters of baptism, and the next thing it says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. I'm thinking Jesus is going. You know, this is not exactly what I thought was going to happen, uh, and that becomes a question for all of us. What does it mean to follow? What does it mean to turn and repent? And we've done this. I've given myself to Jesus. Everything's going to get better. And it turns out it's more like a, what the old joke about a country song, you know, <laughs> what happens when you play a country song backwards, you know, your wife comes back and you get your truck, and, you know, all that stuff, because <laughs> you think it's going to go all, everything's going to be great once you get and then it goes the other way and it keeps going uh the second sunday you know jesus is is telling people uh responding to them saying thou art the christ and then he says and he began to teach them the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and he said this queen openly and this time it's peter went going whoa 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 wait a minute when i said you're the christ that's not what i had in mind so two years, Sundays in a row, we've got, I thought it meant this, and it means this other thing. See, that's a it? great that's a great potential sermon title right there. Yeah. That's not what I thought this meant. 
<laughs> you know, do you have folks sitting in your pews going, Oh, she talking about pastor. That's not what I thought it meant coming here and being part of this church. And so, yeah, yeah, you get the third Sunday and here goes Jesus into the temple and they've all got this idea of what they're doing and they're doing all this temple stuff. And sometimes we have a tendency when we're looking at this changing, you know, the, the thing in the temple of accusing these people of something that was worse than it was. Money changers and people came, they needed to buy an animal for sacrifice. They needed to have the right money. They were providing a service. Now they had kind of gotten it further into the building than they ought to. And they have the same response. They're kind of going, wait a minute, what did we do? Here comes Jesus who's been lauded. He's going to be the new Messiah. And we're, they're like, oh, good. He'll be here. That means we'll get a lot more customers. This is going to be a good day. And then he goes crazy. And they're going, wait a minute. This is not what I thought it was. You see the theme I'm I'm building here. Mm -hmm. We think it's going to go one way and it's going a different way. Then you get over to the fourth Sunday and we got the <laughs> lifting the serpent up in the wilderness and light and life and you got to just read this carefully. There's not a dramatic encounter in this story, but there is this kind of dr dramatic question of what does it mean to follow, to be, have the sun and be lifted up. We're coming to the cross and there, the listeners are going, wait a minute, lift it up. What does he mean by lift it up? We're following Jesus. And we, yeah, we said this stuff about the cross. You meant, you meant that literally? I remember, you remember my cousin Vinny? And he said, you know, when he came in and he had the same leather jacket on again and the, and the judge said, what are you wearing? He said, well, I'm wearing my clothes. He said, I told you to get a suit. He said, you were serious about that? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of Jesus' followers as the cross kept came closer and closer to the cross, we're beginning to be befuddled saying he was serious about that. He was serious about this business of losing your life. He was serious hmm. of how deadly, how every losing everything. Hmm. He was serious about selling all you have and giving it to the poor. Hmm. And we, we're going to be going back, you all, yeah. sort of Sunday by Sunday. Delmer's giving yeah. us a trail to follow here. Yeah. But I, as we're thinking about those themes, though, I, I, I'm always thinking, okay, so how does that work today? In you know, I know people that by word or by attitude are like, well, yeah, I enjoy reading these stories about how it was back then. But surely... Jesus can't be serious about that for, for me and for us in our time. Surely it's different. And, and you know, if Jesus were Leslie Nielsen, what would he say? I am serious and don't call me yeah. Shirley. But, <laughs> yeah, is it? it's easy to discount this old story. Yeah, I get it. Those disciples, they, they really couldn't get it. No, wait a minute. Still well, a word and, for us. And you get to John, you know, there were some... At the worship festival were some Greeks, and they came to Philip. And we wished to see Jesus. 
et cetera, et cetera. But he says, the hour has come for the son to be glorified. Turns out glorified is about dying and losing your life. He said this in the last words of this text. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. So what I'm trying to set up is a theme that runs throughout the season of Lent of it ain't what we thought it was going to be. And what did you think was going to happen? And what really happens is a way of drawing people into thinking about and experiencing meditatively what it means to follow Christ. Because we continually, and I do, I, I know I do, I have for whatever number of years I could be considered serious about trying, no matter how hard I try, I somehow turn it into something that's going to make me better. Mm. It becomes something about me and for me. And I continually am confronted with the rock that smashes my notions about who I am and reminds me that it is it is giving up of my life is the only way I'm really going to have it. And that's, that's a hard one. It, 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 it confronts almost everything we do. There's an old liturgy uh, whereby when the uh, catechumens come forth before the altar to confess their faith, as soon as they do that, the priest slaps them in the face. And uh, I guess that did. I don't know if that liturgy is still around. I uh, I don't. I might have done it myself. It didn't continue. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that that's that's probably as close as you get to to what you're stressing here, and and that is what's what's in store for us when we make the confession. By word or or by deed. Talk about startling. That's that's startling, Bill. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So let's react a little bit. And um, again, we're not have time to give this the full uh, retreat workshop method where we dig into all the text and all of that. We, we will run through them. But in thinking about this progression through Lent and in following through these themes. Get, let's give some reaction. Ask some questions. Do you, you know, have have other ideas struck you while you've been listening and and looking to this? I um. I scared I, everybody, John. <laughs> yeah, I I I thought. Oh. Uh, I was being half facetious with that sermon title, but yeah, this I didn't. This is not what I thought this was going to be. That that's that's pr probably a, it is. It's a really good idea into this, yeah. and maybe something to kind of hang the hooks on as we look at some of the individual texts on Sundays. Maybe that'll uh, something like that'll pop out for you. Um, someone earlier, maybe it was John or someone else mentioned. See, people mentioned series. Uh, I, I don't know that this is a full-blown series, but it is a good idea to have an idea or two that sort of run throughout this season of Lent 
And uh, goodness gracious, well, where are places where people, even in Jesus' time and in mid, in the middle of doing this, said, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Am I still a follower of Jesus? Again, back to the question, what does it mean to be the Christ? What does it mean to follow the Christ? And I think we we all know kind of how the story comes out. We've read this one before, but there are a few dropouts along the way, right? <laughs> People always get upset. Oh, so-and-so's dropped out of the church. They're not coming back. You know, and I, I have compassion for that. And as a pastor, always willing to do what I can, what's going on, you know, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I've learned to say, it happens. It happens. And it's going to happen. This this particular set of texts, this particular set of Lenten texts, for me, greatly challenges the church itself. And that, that, as to say, what is the face that we turn to the world and why, what are we trying to tell them? And very often we find ourselves trying to say positive things. If you come and be with us, how positive your life is going to be. We try to find the consumerist need and try to fill it rather than, I think, challenge people to change what they may not even know is wrong. That's that's a very difficult route to take. There's a story my daddy used to tell. Back in Mount Airy, North Carolina, we had Jackson Brothers store, and daddy would, you know, how Southerners tell some stories, they make them as realistic as possible, and you got to, everybody listening knows it's not a true story. So, you know, so you use people you know and this sort of thing. As, as Mark Twain said, if you tell it big enough, no sane person ought to believe it. It's not a lie. So <laughs> the story goes, a man was, had a, in Jackson Brothers store, they brought in this fellow who was going to sell suits. They put a, a new section for him to sell suits. He had this mirror and over the mirror, he put different colored lights and if somebody said they wanted a green suit, he would. you could hear him say to the person behind, man says he wants a green suit, turn on the green light. They had green light and blue light and different lights that would enhance the color. It seems to me that sometimes we in the church try to turn on, people want a green suit, we try to turn on the green light. Mm-hmm. And these gospel lessons throughout this season of Lent, jerk us away from that from from being trying to project what we think people want to trying to say what it is the gospel says now first sunday in lent the baptist very short text and it starts off very simply you know john mark is such a subtle writer interestingly we we kind of said he was at one point people would talk about him not being very sophisticated i think he's just very direct with a straightforward kind of language that sometimes hides the subtlety of what he's doing. In those days, Jesus of Nazareth came and was baptized. Very nice story. And just as he was coming out of the water, the heavens, you know, and the spirit descending like a dove and the spirit says, this is my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. And everybody's like, Oh, isn't that nice? 
He got baptized and his daddy loved it and every, everything's fine. Then you get this jerk. <laughs> the spirit drove him into the wilderness and listen, tempted by Satan. Not only did he have to go to the wilderness for 40 days, he's tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beast. I don't know what the wild beast are. You can extemporize that or you can say, yeah, just... They're bad, bad animals out there in the wilderness. And the angels waited on him. So there's a little edge. And then, then John was arrested, and we know John dies. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news. Okay, we're back to it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. Repent <laughs> and hear the good news. Repent. John, what? John's sermon. Good news? John's sermon. Come, he John's arrested, eventually die, and he picks up the mantle. Now, all I'm saying is, is this John Mark is quickly running us through expectations and shattered expectations and pulling us in a different direction. Mm -hmm. We expect what is good news? Repent. John just got arrested. Where's the good news here? Jesus just got baptized. Did not wait a minute. He's in the wilderness with the devil and wild beast. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Yeah. If if gospel writers were characterized as types of movies or types of scenes in movies, Mark would be uh, a chase scene. You know, one of those <laughs> movies that starts out and boom, run off the bat. Here they go running. And and we're whipped at least a couple different directions, just just right here out of out of the bat. Um Again, not to delve in a lot of details, but we're on that first Sunday in Lent. Okay, if you got the text in front of you, or you can pull it up. Um, the the God, I, I think we're all. I hope we're all kind of in agreement. The gospel really does, as Elmer often says, <laughs> drive the train. It's the center of what we're doing. So, I'm really. I think for the, our purposes today, the the gospel text is is what we'll look at. Uh, as you look over that. Um, what do you see in terms of things that jump out at you or th things that connect to this theme or something else you're thinking? By the way, I, the, in the chat, I just point out to y'all, there have been several good ideas shared. And you can indeed save this chat. Uh, go down to the bottom if you want to turn it into a file as we get done. And, and you'll have all of these links and stuff. Um, yeah. What, what do you all want to say about Mark 1, 9 to 15? I'll, I'll give you my big tension point. I'm not uncomfortable with silence, but I, I know we're on a limited time frame today. Um, and Delmer's already alluded to it, and we've already pre-argued about it a little bit. We'll see what happens when we get to the podcast uh, by this time. But, uh, and that is in verse 12, the difference in Mark from some of the other gospels, and that is that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness not led didn't lead him didn't nudge him uh, or urge him or suggest to him the spirit drove him what are we gonna do with that what's what's going on with the spirit driving 
Every time I hear this gospel from Mark, I think about my um, New Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Rick Carlston, um, talking about this, that we look at this story as this beautiful, as Delmer said a moment ago, beautiful story of Jesus' baptism. But that that pretty bird that came down didn't just come down and a light on Jesus' shoulder, like, you know, it came down and I can see Dr. Carlson jumping up on the table and going, it drove into him, bam, right into him. You know, this, it's a, this is a story, it, it's it's almost violent, you know, and, and can you imagine Jesus thinking, baptized, and then all of a sudden getting kicked in the hiney out into the wilderness where he's got no food, no nothing. He's just out there. It Sometimes our life feels like that. Mm-hmm. And, but, but we're never alone because God is always with us, of course. But, but this, this isn't necessarily this pretty fairy tale story. This is, this is real God making a difference. Um, Thank you for sharing your your professor's idea. As you were telling that, that's the first time in my life I ever had that image of the Holy Spirit turning from this floating beautiful dove to peck and see, go, go, go. I don't know if I'll use that or not, but that's, yeah, this is not a comfortable word. It is drive out. Right. Right. Get out of here, son. You're banished is one of the ways you, you translate this. If you look at almost that, uh, this image, image of the bird, the dove coming down and suddenly transitioning into <laughs> a, a big uh, eagle or something with talons and grabbing him and flying him off and dropping him in the yeah. wilderness. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I just looked at the the Greek word there mm-hmm. and other places it's used in the New Testament, and it's the it's used f- um, as cast out, casting out demons mm-hmm. yep. in other places yep. of the New Testament, which shows you the the force, mm. the force of that word, and um, and how the Spirit driving him out into the wilderness is really the beginning of his uh, Spirit-led uh, ministry. I, I think an important question for us is we like to talk about in the kind of general way I, uh, amongst the Methodist in the country. And uh, when I was a student at student pastor, they, they were very popular song. Then was there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this mm. place. There's a sweet, sweet that song. spirit in this place. And they're swaying and all this stuff and the image of that. And this is just counter to that whole notion of the spirit and how gentle it is and how it, it feels it and challenge us. What is the spirit pushing us to do? This would be a good place to put. Maybe ask your congregation, what is the spirit? We've been baptized. We've been baptized to follow Christ. Where is the spirit pushing us? What is the wilderness that we're resisting going into? So much so that the spirit has to drive us. I've, I've mentioned this many times, but my ordination 
my and for you United Methodist, it was as a deacon in June of 1977, Methodist College, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Bishop Joe Thomas told us that the Holy Spirit will lead you somewhere you don't want to go. Because if you wanted to go there, the Spirit would not be necessary. I have thought of that many times over the years, particularly in places I was definitely did not want to be. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I reckon the Spirit brought me here because I didn't choose to be in this place. Uh, that's a lot of what's going on in that text. Can we move to the second Sunday or has anybody got something? I just, I just wanted to say, I wanted to pick up on what Bill said. It, this text just seems to be a lot of repeated slaps, um, yep. you know, baptism to wilderness, you know, peaceful spirit to the slamming in of the dove, um, or, you know, the Holy Spirit. Um, and what I came up with at the end of it is just a lot of disorientation. I think we get that sometimes you know we just get disorientated disoriented so that we can find that mm. redirection and that's what repentance is turn the other way so i'm i'm i'm, I'm seeing a lot of spinning going on in this text so <laughs> that's so that's a great point seems to me that's the answer to this, I, this is not what i thought it was mm -hmm. and we get okay well, we're going to shake that up a little bit. What, mm -hmm. you know, and and what does it mean to follow Christ? You go. You mean Jesus had to be driven? What he experienced this too? So, yeah, yeah. okay. I, and, I just remember my home pastor used to he used to mention about uh, the 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 event of Jesus's baptism as being the time when Jesus received his working papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I I can remember growing up as a as a youngster. We I. I in New York, and I don't know if it was in the other places also, but in order for you, if you were under the age of being able to work a you know, forty-hour job or whatever, you had to get working papers in order in, in order to work. And, and he uses that analogy of having to get working papers to coincide with Jesus's baptism and saying that yeah. you know through our baptism we receive our working papers to go about doing the work that the Spirit calls us to do. So. Thanks, John. Good, good, good stuff. Got some other. Any other burning comments on Sunday, first Sunday, and that first passage? If okay. our Lord had to be driven into the wilderness, what about us? Well, there you go. What does it mean to be a follower of this? That's right. And, that, and the thought of going out into the wilderness, our world today, with the gospel and contending for love, no matter what, mm -hmm. it's going to get us uh, in trouble. Mm -hmm. Okay, Lent two, and, and we, going we back, yeah, go ahead, please, Tabitha. I'm sorry, just just one thought. I think going back to also what, what Pam had kind of brought up too, like I think the rub here is that for folks in the pew, uh, in the pews hearing this would be, um, would be, um, uh, is it is it what's the purpose of God sending us into the wilderness? Is that, is that what God's role is here? And then, and then I think their follow-up question would be like, so why would God have us experience either challenge, suffering, um, temptation, you know, difficulty in life, if we understand, um, if people identify with that wilderness story and then be able to, and, and you, and have examples in their own lives about how, 
how they may be experiencing wilderness. Mm -hmm. And that might be the challenging question for us, both yeah. um, biblically, exegetically, yeah. and theologically, too, to, to, mm -hmm. to think about what is the good news in this story. Great challenging have, question. I have a short answer is that uh, for me, going into the wilderness is where I find you go to the wilderness to find yourself. Because it's sure. strips, and maybe a little of the theology of the cross, but yeah, it strips away everything else you've got and that you end up mm -hmm. just with nothing but the devil, the, the beast, and the angels. So we got all that these Lutherans. We had to get to the theology of the cross. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That makes me think that makes me think of how the wilderness was a place of danger and death. You didn't yeah. willingly go to the wilderness, and when you did, you were risking your life. And that brought me to the contrast between all the contrasts in this text, but especially the wild beast versus the angels. There was danger, but Jesus was protected. Hmm. And you might go somewhere with that. A lot so, of good stuff. Yeah, that'll pop up in these. So let, let's move let's to go next. Mark 8. Uh, Mark 30, 8. 38. So that same basic kind of theme of the the contrast is we got it backwards. So here we got Jesus saying, what does it mean for Jesus to him to be the son of man, the son of God, the, the, the various Messiah figure. And he lays it out, undergo suffering, rejected, be killed. At this point, Peter stops listening and doesn't hear the will rise again because Peter's took him aside and began to rebuke him. And just like drove is a very strong word, the word translated here, and I don't have it written in my notes and my Greek mm -hmm. is what it is, but it's a very strong word. It's a very, it's not like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. It was, mm -hmm. it's very aggressive rebuking. Uh, and then there's my wonderful homiletical, but in verse 33, but turning and looking at the disciples, he turns around and rebukes Peter very strongly, get behind me, Satan. That has to be tied to the time in the wilderness, you know, because uh, in John, uh, you know, I mean, well, that's tied to the whole notion of having been tempted. And this is another temptation. What he's rebuking is Peter's trying to tempt him away from the way of the cross. Um, this is why it's get behind me, Satan here, because Satan is the tempter. And so he is saying, get behind me. You're setting your mind not on divine, etc." So he moves from the disciple Peter and the disciples to the crowd, which is when he's makes pronunciations, you know, is to the crowd. If you want to be my followers, deny self, take up cross and follow. This is the core of this text. But it's repeating what he already said, basically, in 31. This is what I'm going to have to do. So I'm going to deny myself and take up a cross. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up a cross. Then he kind of explicates what this means in terms of if you want to try to protect your life, you're going to lose it. And if you're going to, you just have to go all in and lose your life and you'll save it. That is the hard part. Mm. This is where people are going, well, how much of my IRA do I really have to give up? Um, 
how, you know, for me, most of the people I preach to anymore, I can't believe that at 69, I'm still in the youngest set in the most of the churches I preach in here in the mountains of, you know, these little congregations. Uh, and most of us have our retirement funds and our set incomes and our accumulated this. And we're like, what, how much of that am I supposed to give up? How much of that am I supposed to risk? Seriously? You need to really address that rather than play, I think, preaching rather than just metaphorically. It really needs to be said, what does this mean when it, in, in real-life terms? What does it mean to begin to give up your life? And it means something different. I think for someone, for me, in my 20s, this text sounded a lot different than it does as I'm six weeks away from being 70 and officially old. You know, it's a whole whole different way of looking at it. And I think that's the core of this question here is Jesus says, I'm going to have to give up my life. And I'll be raised again in three days, but I'm going to have to give up my life. And Peter says, ain't no way. And he turns to the crowd and says, look, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross and follow. And that's going to mean losing your, maybe losing your life. What does it mean to lose your life? Yeah. What does it mean to lose your life? Yeah. Just die? No, I don't think that's it. No, it's not just die. What does it mean to lose your life? I think that's the question you address this week's sermon. Mm. There's tension. <laughs> Y'all know our favorite phrase, tension in the text. There's more than one place where it is, but they're, they're all, I think, centrally, uh, certainly related to deny yourself, take up a cross, save your life, lose it. Uh, if you lose it, you'll find it. Uh, then there's this extra odd phrase, and for the sake of the gospel. So, yeah, you got to decide where to center down, I guess. Thoughts, reactions. I heard verse 38, the concluding verse of this, lots growing up in my evangelical yeah. Baptist congregation, usually at witnessing conferences. Those who are ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you. So y'all get out there and uh, tell all your fellow 13-year-olds, don't be <laughs> doing all that stuff you're doing because Jesus is going to get you. I mean, yeah. Ooh. I always said I wasn't exactly ashamed of it, but I was kind of quiet about quiet it. Quiet about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thoughts on Sunday too, and the text I've tentatively titled hard, I'm a sermon, Hard Words for a Hard Road. If you're going to be on the hard road, you might as well go ahead and get some hard words to get started. Because if I can offend you, I literally say, have said over the years to couples coming to me for marriage counseling and pre pre you know, pre I said, okay, we're going to meet so many times, blah, 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 blah. And if I can, I'm going to talk you two out of getting married. And they look at me and I said, because if I can talk you out of it, I'm not sure you're quite ready. I mean, and we're talking about all the common issues. So hard words for a hard road. Might as well know. Right. Yeah. As, uh, J as, John. As, as we can, as we continue to go along and I'm sure many of you are probably thinking about it also. Uh, there is also the question of how are 
how are our folks in the pews going to receive our message in the midst of an, ele an election year? Um, I, I know, I'm sure I've rubbed some people look the wrong way over the past year, but I'm just preaching. I'm just preaching with the with with what the gospel says. So we is. talk about losing losing one's life <laughs> and saving it for my sake and in, in gospel. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. you know for some folks that's going to be it's going to be a, a a hard message mm -hmm. for folks to yeah. to to hear. Indeed. I know Delmer's got to get out of here at 1130. So Bubba, is there any way you can kind of hitch uh, three, yep. four, five with your thoughts? And then yep. we'll. Yep. And I'm, I'm sorry. Time. I got a scoot, but yep. life hits. Um, so the on three, uh, we have, you may end up focusing on the money changers in the temple and all that. I got a couple of quick things to mention. Then I want to tell you what I think the key here is. Uh, 215. Uh, just note, it says making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He didn't hit any people with his cord. <laughs> he was driving out animals. Just be aware of that. People say, well, Jesus got angry and he hit people. Mm -hmm. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Mm -hmm. No, he didn't. Um, the question he had was about what is my father's house? And, and we can you can play around with that. I think the real key comes at 1819 because they say, what sign can you show us for doing this? I'll, I'll, when we do the show late, you know, later, though, you know, I'll examine the whole question of how you use the word Jews in John and, and be careful about anti-Semitism. And right now we've got a a lot of people open to some anti-Semitism, and we got to be careful about that. So I just want to say, we get, but we'll discuss that more later. The question is, the leaders say, what sign did you have? And this is where it gets kind of shifty. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And this is where he shifts from talking about the building itself to the Messiah. This is, and John is, you know, my, the take here is that John is making this proclamation because the temple has already been destroyed when John writes this in 70 AD. So you got to be aware of that. And this is written to the early church. So you got to shift from taking this as words for Jesus spoke in that moment, say 40 years before the temple was destroyed and realize it's being spoken after the temple was destroyed and trying to say, what does this mean about using it as an illustration? What does it mean? And it's a resurrection moment. You can destroy me, the presence of God in the world. And I will, this body will be raised up. This is where this third week, we're making a major shift into talking about uh, good Friday and Easter. We're, Lent is making this shift toward Holy Week. Um, because it says over in 2.22, after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. One of the interesting things, and I always like texts like that because it says, I go, Phew. so it's okay that I don't didn't understand this. They didn't understand it when Jesus said it to them. 
It was only after the resurrection that they began to look back and see what he said and understand what it meant is what that text helps me with. Sometimes um, when you're in the midst, these things are just a mess. So um, when you're when yeah. you're proclaiming this, it's going to be interesting to find a way to make that shift for folk. Because for it it, it was much more present with the first readers who were aware, you know, aware of the temple, aware of what it represented, aware that it had been torn down, and they got this shift. It's much harder for us. Uh, the past is not just the past. It's a foreign country, and they do things differently there. You got four minutes, Bubba. All right. So that's three. Then on the, the fourth, I'm just it, it shifts even more as you're moving toward the serpent, lifting up the serpent and God so loved the world. Uh, it's always important to me. I grew up in evangelical world like John did. I knew John three sixteen by heart in every, in the King James version, but I don't remember ever hearing John three seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I think that's something to play with there. Uh, but the other thing he's playing playing with is the judgment about the light. Jesus is the light, and people love darkness rather than light. I think that's a that would be an important thing to play, to work with right now, because we've spent most of Epiphany and Lent showing Jesus being revealed, all the signs, all of this stuff, and it's right there in front of them. The lights there. And what is it that keeps people from embracing the light? And John's vision is it's because they love the darkness more. And I, I will tell you that um, I have a medical had a medical situation some years ago with psoriasis in which I had to go under the light a lot, and I didn't like it. You know, I'd get naked. And I had to stand there and be examined from head to toe and everywhere onto the planet Earth with this light. And I did not like being examined under the light. I didn't like what I saw, much less what other people saw. And I think that's a part of this that we need to be aware of for people is that it's easier spiritually to just pretend we're okay. Hmm build a vision of what it means to be Christian that we can that we can live up to and let's not put too strong a light on what it mean what gospel said and how we're how we're in, in in line with that I'm not sure where all of that might go but I think that's pretty important because why if God so loved the world he gave his only son and everyone who believes in him may, may not perish but have eternal life and he didn't come to condemn but to give life so why are people turned from the light? You can invite three guest speakers on this day, Delmer, to comment <laughs> on your sermon. See no evil, hear no evil, no evil. speak no evil. But I don't see if I don't know anything about it. It's, it's okay. We're, 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 it's not a problem. All right. You got yep. a minute, Bubba. And the last, the last one is that wonderful, sir, we would see Jesus. And they say, he says, the hour has come to be glorified. And then he says, the grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. 
-hmm. unless it does that and dies into the earth, it just is a grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And again, back to the love life and lose it and hate this life and follow me, be a servant. It comes back once again to this whole thing of what does it mean to lose one's life? What did it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And how hard that is to hear, believe, and embrace. And the crowd standing there heard it. Verse 29, the voice that says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So they heard it and said it was thunder, said an angel. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. <laughs> I think one of the things to explore on that day, and like you said, I do have to run, um, is to explore as we approach Holy Week. We've heard all of this. Why, what is holding us back? What have we heard? And I think what holds us back is it's painful to change your life. And the gospel calls us to a change. And the therapist that I used to go to told me all the time, you will change when the pain of changing becomes less than the pain of staying the way you are. Right on. And y'all, I got to change locations and go. I love you. Appreciate you. It's been a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you, Delmer. We'll, uh, we'll see you later. Just, bye -bye. Uh, you just need to tell everybody bye. Everybody, everybody bye. <laughs> we could all join in, couldn't we? Oh, wow. So we've had some ideas thrown out at us here. And again, it's 1130, 1131 Eastern time. Uh, you all are your own monitors today. And I I will stay. I'll talk these texts just about as long as anybody wants to. But let's open up the time. If you do need to slip out, please do. Um yeah, let's 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 slide back a little bit then to that third Sunday in March where we change the change comes to John's gospel. And so we're in John 2, 13 to 22, the quote money changers in the temple. Um for me, with John's gospel, I always begin to think, and in some ways I kind of say to my folks, okay, now John's gospel's a little different. Just go with the flow, okay? Let's 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 just read it and and we'll talk about it. But let's go with the flow and and so it's a little more esoteric and some of the details are just you know kind of strange. But um, so what about this? What's Delmer said? He's not sure the the running the money changers out's the real point here. Could be and and maybe that's what your folks are going to need to major on in here. But, but so what is the real point? What's going on in this passage? on this third Sunday. I think one of the, well, it's right in the center of the actual text is what the Jews ask him, what sign mm -hmm. can you show us? And it's, it's back to Delmer's idea about the voice and what Jesus, you know, who is Jesus as the Christ and how do we identify that? Yeah, Sue. Uh, 
the the Jews here, and again, as he said, we'll talk more about that on the actual mm-hmm. episode. And, and mm-hmm. we're, we're not. This is not castigating all Jews, not Jewish people. It's John's shorthand for basically the leaders. And where do the leaders live and work and function in this time? In Jerusalem, right? Yeah. And they're in and around the temple. And, and I hear a lot these days about the problems in Washington because our senators and representatives and others, all they think about is Washington. They live in a bubble. They don't live out in the real world. And so, uh, you know, we've been walk- coming along through Epiphany and even through Lent, and we've been seeing Jesus walking among the people, and we've been seeing with them the miracles and feedings and, you know, water into wine. That was a good one. Um, but the... The Jews here, the leaders, they haven't been out there. So what sign can you give? Who do you think you are? So I I can see a little bit. Partially, their question comes out of ignorance. They they haven't been there. They live in a bubble. Um, And yeah, and then Jesus uses that to turn this whole temple body uh, thing going on. What else? I, I think, too, that a part of it is that um, many of the religious leaders were kind of getting kickbacks from the Romans. <laughs> yeah. And so good system. The, the commerce of the, the temple increased the um, religious leaders' power. It increased their their money and negotiating power with the Romans. Um, and that, that even it it may have been the bubble. Yes. But I think a bigger part of it was that when Jesus came in and did what he did, their little Ponzi scheme, uh, kickback scheme was in jeopardy Mm -hmm. and, and they didn't really like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think excellent point. Yeah, Jane. I think something else to remember about this is that this is in the second chapter of John. Mm -hmm. And so this is Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem. So for people to ask, who do you think you are? And I mean, that's normal. Like he's never been there before. He's only, I mean, he's been there, but never as an adult, Mm -hmm. you know, and in John's writing, this is really his first trip to Jerusalem. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it would be natural if you came in and kind of took over out there going, who in the world do you think you are? Yeah. And perhaps from John's perspective, I mean, most of us know John's writing to give signs. This is a sign that, you know, that he's coming and doing this. This is my father's house. Don't make this into this. So excellent point, Jane. Uh, and this is where John differs a little bit from what we think of as the um, you know, the synoptic timeline where it all comes to a big climax in, in Jerusalem near the end of Jesus' time. So, yeah, excellent point. John, I think uh, we learned that uh, uh, recognizing Jesus for who he is is a spiritual discernment. And I think he's moving around in a world with that kind of discernment and still holding out the temple as a place where uh, the spirit, where the father, where God dwelt. And mm. this is what the, it said, prostituted uh, by, by the folks. And uh, 
God had not interrupted them setting up their stalls, so I suppose it was all right. Uh, I think in the gospel for this Sunday, where, where the uh, man with a, an evil spirit makes a confession of the identity of Jesus, a good epiphany text, is maybe a lesson for us that what makes things so difficult is that we are discerning a world spiritually over and against what's been said here so often, mm. that the world is not interested in that, that the world is not interested in following. They, they go their own way. And as long as it doesn't, the world, earth doesn't open up and swallow them, it's okay. So uh, I, I think that the... Uh, his movements, whenever they are around things that are supposedly held sacred by the believing people, you have to use that as an, as an interpretation. Uh, mm. Thank you. I'm just glancing through the uh, chats and uh, a couple people had to go. Uh, Jennifer, what a great comment. I don't know if you've all have had a chance to see with her, but she says, I'm struck again by the diversity of contexts we serve and the ears on which our words might fall. And and, and I love the rest of your, your comment. We mentioned that a lot. When it comes down to it, uh, from our perspective, from Delmer and my perspective, and the, the, the show each week and the writing we do, it's not a goal of saying, now there's a meaning in this text and we're going to help you find it. you got to take that meaning and give it to your congregation. Um, we're much more in the line of these texts. And as the spirit does the spirit's work and, and as the texts work together, um, there are multiple things that may be said. And one of the key determinants for us as preachers is whose ears... Am I going to be speaking to? Where are these words going to fall? What's going on in the lives of my congregation, my people in the pews? And uh, so what I may need to say to my primarily retiree audience here in Venice, Florida, may be different from what someone else may need to say to the you know, 20 or 30 folks that are gathered and maybe there's some, I don't know, some farmers and maybe some people with grandkids and you may have some kids and young families and working adults. I, so it's a, that's a really good point. Thank you, Jennifer, for speaking up to that. Uh, yeah. Anybody else on this John passage, this particular John passage? I just had yeah. one. Ooh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, Marsha. It's a little ironic to me that this comes just a few Sundays after our pancake garage sale and bake sale that we hold at the church. <laughs> so we will be selling and, and changing money yeah. at the church shortly before breaching the sermon. Yeah. Do you serve pancakes there in, in, in the in the pulpit area? That that would be the question. Uh, no, I or think we'll do that at the fellowship hall. Oh, okay. <laughs> what about hot pot buns? Yeah, there you go. Sue. Yeah, I just um it was kind of again picking up on something that Bill said. Um the temple scene asking the question of us, what do we hold so sacred that if we had to uh, let it go 
um, you know, that that we, we hold on to it so tightly because letting it go makes us, I'm going to use the word uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, it's tied in. That's, you know, Jesus, Jesus coming into Jerusalem makes the authorities uncomfortable. Um, and so they want to reject him. Um, and, and like, like Marcia said, our, our, our folks are made known for their pies, their homemade pies here at our church. And I was thinking, you know, what if that marketplace had gotten disturbed? You know, how uncomfortable would that make us um, here in our church and um, what would it mean? So again. Yeah. I, as I said, in my office, I'm watching people come and go because we're getting ready for the annual rummage sale and, you know, people are bringing their stuff in to get rid of. And all that. <laughs> uh, the best I could make, maybe I'll think of more when we, by the, between now and the time we prepare this episode, that opening scene is if nothing else a sign that with Jesus coming to town, it's not business as usual. And it, it it may not be necessary to critique everything about that situation or about whether we're selling pies or crafts or rummage sale or youth groups holding a car wash or whatever. Uh, as it is, um, this opportunity in Lent to challenge us, in what ways this business as usual maybe need to be interrupted a little bit. So the fourth Sunday text, again in John, as Delmer did a good job, we've got the serpents and the snakes, and we got this uh, scripture that jumps out in lots of places, the, the John 3.16, you know, uh, and, and then we don't we don't get to some of the other stuff, but it, it is a full uh, pericope here. There's, this all goes together. So again, sort of what's the point on this fourth Sunday? I am a sufferer of the phobia. I used to know the correct name for it, but something, fear of snakes, irrational fear of snakes. You can tell me all day, oh, it's just a garden snake. Oh, it's just this. We, oh, it's helpful. Oh, it eats the rodents. It eats the bugs. You can, you can tell me all day. Damn snake runs out in front of me. I'm running the other way and I'm going to scream. <laughs> and just and my kids witnessed this once when I when they were younger, and they still laugh at me. Um, and so I, it's a little creepy for me every every time we come around here. As the serpent lifted in the wilderness, and the Son of Man must be lifted up, and you have to go back and think about what was going on in that uh, wilderness uh, experience and the sickness and and all of that. And we don't always have time necessarily to go back and explicate what was going on with uh, Moses and the and the Israelites. Um, but but here we have it, and Delmer mentioned earlier, lifted up in the story we're telling, which is part of what Lent is. The church is telling the story again of Jesus. It, it is important to know, yeah, Jesus is dropping some hints here about the lifted up. And, and then as we follow, what does it mean to be the Christ? This is the one who will give his life, who will be lifted up. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? How will we be lifted up? Um, yeah, and then the light dark image. Um, so, so what what is going on here? Any thoughts? This is your chance to lay some stuff out in front of a very experienced group of preachers. And 
John, I was just looking at this and I'm impressed and I hadn't really noticed this before. But in the first three verses, the words believe in him are repeated three times. And, you know, when something's repeated, we're supposed to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't know what we would do with that, but it is there. It could be a great key, Marcia, for unlocking. Because what was what was the key back in the wilderness when they put the serpent up on the pole and everyone was called to look? What What's going on there? Was there a magic power to the serpent itself? Or was it the belief that God could heal and would heal? Uh, and, and again, I'm, I've got circled 58 times here, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And I'm going, I got to work on that. How, how does that translate? And you might be giving us a key. There was some belief involved. And Delmer's question rings, in the wilderness, why would anybody not want to look, take a chance on looking at a bronze serpent on a pole? I've just always thought, well, they were hard-headed. Oh, well, duh, there's some insight, too, for today. Hmm. What else? What else can we think about or play around with in this text? Well, I think to connect to the um, believe in him repeated three times, and I'm trying to piece together when we were talking about earlier about see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. If I can connect those, you know, the threes together somehow, I don't have a way of doing that yet, but I'm thinking uh, about it. Okay. And that's what we're doing at this stage in the text, right? Several of you have been to our workshop, and I, I'm just big on that. You start by not saying, oh, I know this text. I've got it all figured out. Nor do you start by reading the text a time or two and saying, okay, well, let me outline what's happening. You start by just paying attention to what's going on in the text. And it's a great detail to notice. Well, they said believe in him three times. I wonder why that's there three times. And you just make a note about it. And so it'll come back around. I think you're right, Jane. You, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but you noticed it. Mm-hmm. So that's really important in this preparation stage. Just spending a little time with the text and noticing. Yeah, Pam. I, I also would point out that there's this um, universality in what 17 is saying that um, that the sun is coming into the world, um, not to condemn the world or that the world might be saved. So mm-hmm. I think too often we we can find what God does through Jesus to our Christian in our own beliefs, but it's uni- universal. Mm-hmm. And so it takes that the judgment, I think, away. Yeah. Um and it's important. I think it's important to keep that in mind. We are not the exclusive recipients of mm-hmm. God's grace and mercy. We talked earlier, was it first week or second week? Anyhow, about the covenantal connection here, the covenant, and mm-hmm. as, as God's express. And, and, you know, what were God's words to Abram on that day? Bless you, yes, and your family, yes. But it's so <laughs> that all the world... All the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And, and indeed, all the world uh, in the UCC, a couple of you are affiliated. Um, it, it's a big idea to remember that 
God loves the entire creation. Um, when we talk about the world, it's not just us, not, not just us humans. It's, it's the world. Uh, yeah. So God so loved the world. It's cosmos, but the right? World, mm -hmm. Fortunately, if you go all the way through the text, it gives you a profile of the world into which this message comes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, is sort of scary because it is very definite that the, while it is a message for the world, not all the world is going to respond to it. Or their response is not going to be one of belief or trust or um, something that will cause your light focus to change. That's pretty heavy stuff on there. Mm -hmm. uh, and through my years, I still have never found a good translation of shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, the, the closest thing that I got to that is in, uh, some of you are familiar with the First Nations version of the New Testament, an indigenous translation where all the tribes of the United States got together with Bible scholars and they framed the scriptures in the, in the meter of the uh, uh, language that the young people are not learning and in the language that uh, picturesque language. It's a very interesting one. Hmm. Uh, creator did not send his son to decide against the people of this world, but to set them free from the worthless ways of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that is handling a truth that is extremely profound in a language that cannot be misunderstood. And I think the fact that the, this calling to uh, to believe would go all the way on down the line, and uh, uh, Elmer's right. Uh, I think there is a reason why nobody went beyond 316. John, I think one of the things I'm seeing here, surprisingly in all of the texts for that day, is kind of a a calling on the memory of the people, people of faith, mm -hmm. um, you know, the memory of the Israelites being surviving or being able to live, being redeemed from death. The psalm lifts up that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and they were saved from their distress. Ephesians talks about, um, you know, just you're dead in your transgressions and sins, but you're made alive in Christ. Um, mm -hmm. God lifts you up. And so then here we are again with, you know, at just as Moses lifted up. So there's a lot of memory, um, life versus death. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's 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 the hidden voice that's mm -hmm. coming uh, that mm -hmm. Delmer talked about, the voice in other ways, um, yeah. you know, the, and that. Yeah. And so that it's it's not about condemnation. It's about turning. It's about believing. It's about choosing life and light. So, I mean, it's, mm. this is actually turning out to be richer than I thought it was to be. Oh, buddy. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Okay. We've got just under 10 minutes or so for our allotted time. And let's look at uh, the, then the fifth Sunday. Um, and we're continuing in John. And this is uh, the Greeks. We want to see Jesus. And then 
kind of mysterious proclamation here about grain of wheat falling into the ground and, and then it meets its purpose and saving and losing. And then, as we said, the kind of action thing that catches us is another voice. But again, it's not clearly heard. So I think there's a lot of possibility here. Talk about it for a second. And please excuse me. I've got to step out for about a minute, and it, but I'll be right back. What what about this this passage? Uh oh, the bubbles have left us alone. <laughs> the bubbles have left us alone. <laughs> Feels like we're in the wilderness. Talk <laughs> amongst ourselves. <laughs> Uh, talk about the deep theological question of how we tie this to St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> right? Isn't it March 17th? Is it? Mm -hmm. okay, we've already got to deal with uh, Ash Wednesday and, and uh, Valentine's Day. It's a great year. At least, uh, what was it, a few years ago when Ash Wednesday was, uh, was uh, Valentine's Day, then Easter was April Fool's Day. But this year with with leap year, we um, we had a day, and so we we got a reprieve there. But I I like and one of the one of the Bubba's uh, recent podcasts they were talking about this uh, that sir we wish to see Jesus and that someone had added to the pulpit sir or, or madam we want to see yeah. Jesus but that, that was great. <laughs> I really liked when he was talking about the therapy um, and the therapist said, you will change when the pain of changing becomes less than the pain of staying where you are. <laughs> yeah. And I think about that with the seed and dying and in the ground and um, that has a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Well, and this this text is a bit unclear of, uh, you know, so we've got these Greeks and they want to see Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip go to Jesus and Jesus tells, answers them. But is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to the Greeks? Did, did he ever go see the Greeks? You know, we want to see you, Jesus. Uh, it sounds like a yes or no kind of thing, but. Of course, Jesus doesn't respond that way. Yeah, I'm not sure what uh, what I might have missed, but yeah, to Eric's point, I've begun to read this as Jesus going, okay, that's it, boys. There's the sign we've been waiting on. These are not Jews. These are not Israelites. These are Greeks. They're coming in, and they're asking about this. So that's, that's the sign. The time has come. Time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But we know what that means, right? Because the next image is about grain of wheat falling and dying, etc. The glorified, the path to glory, <laughs> the theology of the cross says that glory lies on the other side. Of uh, it's a pretty difficult stuff, right? Hmm. Yeah, it's not the kind of glory that uh, any of us would seek. Hmm. Oh, great. Jesus, you mean finally we're ready and the new 
fill in the blank campaign is going to pay off and <laughs> people are going to start flooding into the church and we'll have all the workers and money and et cetera, et cetera mm -hmm. that we need and the things that our folks hope for so often. And who's going to sit on your right hand and your left hand and, mm -hmm. all, that. that's, and that's, all that stuff. That's yeah. glory, but yeah. mm -hmm. I like that idea because it echoes from um, Jeremiah's passage about um the covenant is it's no longer will it just be a covenant um the covenant goes beyond the people it gets written on our hearts it's not just with the people and so this expands the covenant to beyond not just the jews but to the greeks to you know everybody out there So, yeah, uh, do you all read Richard Rohr uh, mm -hmm. much? And his uh, his basic idea that Jesus, as we have seen in the Hebrew scripture, in the prophets, etc., Jesus is really just illustrating the way of the world. This is the way the world works. I'm thinking of verse 24, especially. The grain of wheat falls into the earth. It dies. It's just a single grain. But then through its death, there's a new life that has much fruit. There's much more wheat. And he takes that as a real central image. Uh, Jesus is just living out the way of the world. Uh, things have always died. Um, some people want to dispute that when you start thinking about Genesis 3 and the fall, but uh, it seems that the world has always died and there is always new life and out of death comes new life and that the, the good news is God is at work and God has instilled the potential for new life coming from death. So I, I've just got a note to go back and reread and play around with that idea a bit. Um, I wonder if we can. Him, so. I wonder if we can connect that through to Ash Wednesday, mm -hmm. when you think about a forest where a huge fire has been and everything has died, and suddenly there's new growth that starts coming up out of the ground. Um, you really can't stop it. Yeah, you really yeah. can't stop it, can you? If some things need some things need to die or burn so that there is life. I think about. I think it's the pinion pine. That the cones don't open unless to let the seeds out unless they've been um, mm -hmm. heated first. by fire. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. And the verse twenty four indicates that he just does not uh, the seed grows and becomes many seeds. So there's that whole process of new life, uh, even resurrection, extending to all, not just speaking about his own resurrection. New life and life abundantly. So, somebody said earlier, gosh, there's a lot more to this than I thought maybe there was, or that we say, this is the power, and it's one of the things Delmar and I love. It, it Again, it's really the core of our show, and then it's the core of the kind of, this kind of experience. I simply always see and receive and, and understand much more when I have a chance to sit and talk the text with 
with you all. And, and that's why our show is simply, I turn on the microphone and hit the record button and we talk about the texts and we see what comes out. Uh, so I've made lots of good notes for Lent already. You'll probably hear some of them reflected in the Electionary Lab podcast. And I apologize if I didn't quite get everybody's name with every idea. Um, but my thanks to you all. I, I wish there was a way, but it's proved to be almost impossible with schedules, time zones, and everything else. One of the original hopes in Lectionary Lab was that we might be able to develop some sort of time where for 60 to 90 minutes every week, we kind of opened this up and had the the preaching room, you know, where you can just come in and sit and talk, <laughs> probably primarily about the text for that week. Um, I, I just can't, um, we can't find a time that works for everybody because some people it's better in the day, some at night, some on Monday, some on Tuesday, some on whenever, uh, uh, you know, it's too early if you live in the central or mountain or Pacific time. And uh, so I don't know uh, if anybody has any insight into that, we would love to do it because I think this is the best uh, thing at all. I, some of you are involved in lectionary groups, perhaps. Um, and so you already have that chance, but I'm not currently. So it's, it's Bubba first and then it's the rest of you all. And I, I have benefited greatly from it today. So any final words, words of wisdom, anything anybody want to say um, before we head on into the rest of the day? Just a big thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we will try to do this kind of thing. Uh, our ability to host workshops, and et cetera, is waning. And um, I don't know that the, the lectionary lab workshop retreats ever going to come back and that we're sad about that because we have loved it and i wish all of you had the chance to come and join us live sometime uh but that's kind of going the way of the dodo so to speak and even getting online for an entire day to do a workshop and but this couple hours at a time that'd be workable and so yeah pam I really appreciated this so much and can understand how it's not necessarily practical to do it weekly, yeah. but it sure would be nice if we could do it seasonally. Yes. Yeah. Um, think... And know enough in advance that we can plan our schedules around it mm -hmm. um, because it's really, really been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will certainly be given in that. Uh, send us an email, drop a comment uh, on any week of the lectionary lab uh, when you pull it up and that comes through to us. Uh, we always welcome ideas and input. We love preachers. We love the church. We love preachers. And, and that, that's always what we're trying to do. We don't really, it's not entirely that we love hearing our own voices every week. Uh, <laughs> but we want to do what's helpful because we know our motto, one of them, Sunday sure does roll around. Yes. And it's just helpful to get some help sometimes. <laughs> Bye, everybody. We'll see you uh, another time. That's much more to say. All right. <laughs>